Your listenership is so important to us. We really do hope you're enjoying the show. If you're able to leave a review on Apple Podcasts, it would be enormously helpful in allowing us to reach more people and help them get a good night's sleep. So is following us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and any other podcast player that you use. Thank you so much for your support. Welcome to Send Me to Sleep, the place to find a good night's rest. My name's Andrew. I'm here to calm your mind and help you relax into a peaceful night's sleep. I'm going to do that by reading you a story. Tonight, I'll be reading The Extraordinary Adventures of Arsène Lupin, Gentleman Burglar, The Seven of Hearts, Part 2, by Maurice LeBlanc. In the previous part, we were trying to uncover the perpetrator of a mysterious late-night intrusion and discover the cause of the mysterious events that thereafter followed. This story will be one of investigation, confrontation, and revelation. First, let's make sure we're ready to fall asleep. If you're someone who struggles with overthinking before bedtime, I can definitely sympathise. Something you can try is repeating back the words I say to yourself in your head as I say them. Don't worry if you drift off and start thinking about something else. Whenever you catch yourself doing so, just take a deep breath and return to repeating my words in your head. We all fall asleep in our own time and in our own way. So whilst you're on your journey to sleep tonight, all you need to do is listen to the sound of my voice. And so, let your eyes fall heavy and your breath soften as we settle in for a peaceful night's sleep. We were beginning to see a little light coming out of the darkness that surrounded us, and an unexpected light was thrown on certain points, but other points yet remained obscure. For instance, the finding of the two seven of hearts. Perhaps I was unnecessarily concerned about those two cards, whose seven punctured spots had appeared to me under such startling circumstances. Yet I could not refrain from asking myself, what role did they play in the drama? What importance do they bear? What conclusions must be drawn from the fact that the submarine constructed from the plans of Louis Lacombe bore the name of Seven of Hearts? Dasbury gave little thought to the other two cards. He devoted all his attention to another problem which he considered more urgent. He was seeking the famous hiding place. And who knows, said he, I may find the letters that Salvatore did not find, by inadvertence perhaps. It is improbable that the Varin brothers would have removed from a spot which they deemed inaccessible 
the weapon which was so valuable to them, and he continued to search. In a short time, the large room held no more secrets for him, so he extended his investigations to the other rooms. He examined the interior and the exterior, the stones of the foundation, the bricks in the wall. He raised the slates of the roof. One day, he came with a pickaxe and a spade, gave me the spade, kept the pickaxe, pointed to the adjacent vacant lots, and said, Come. I followed him, but I lacked his enthusiasm. He divided the vacant land into several sections, which he examined in turn. At last, in a corner, at the angle formed by the walls of two neighbouring proprietors, a small pile of earth and gravel, covered with briars and grass, attracted his attention. He attacked it. I was obliged to help him. For an hour, under a hot sun, we laboured without success. I was discouraged, but Dasbury urged me on. His ardour was as strong as ever. At last, Dasbury's pickaxe unearthed some bones, the remains of a skeleton to which some scraps of clothing still hung. Suddenly, I turned pale. I had discovered, sticking in the earth, a small piece of iron cut in the form of a rectangle on which I thought I could see red spots. I stooped and picked it up. The little iron plate was the exact size of a playing card, and the red spots made with red lead were arranged upon it in a manner similar to the seven of hearts, and each spot was pierced with a round hole similar to the perforations in the two playing cards. Listen, Dasbury, I've had enough of this. You can stay if it interests you, but I'm going. Was that simply the expression of my excited nerves, or was it the result of a laborious task executed under a burning sun? I know that I trembled as I walked away, and that I went to bed, where I remained forty-eight hours, restless and feverish, haunted by skeletons that danced around me and threw their bleeding hearts at my head. Dasbury was faithful to me. He came to my house every day and remained three or four hours, which he spent in the large room, ferreting, thumping, tapping. The letters are here, in this room, he said, from time to time. They are here. I will stake my life on it. On the morning of the third day, I arose, feeble yet, but cured. A substantial breakfast cheered me up. But a letter that I received that afternoon contributed, more than anything else, to my complete recovery, and aroused in me a lively curiosity. This was the letter. Monsieur, 
the drama, the first act of which transpired on the night of the 22nd of June, is now drawing to a close. Force of circumstances compel me to bring the two principal actors in that drama face to face, and I wish that meeting to take place in your house, if you will be so kind as to give me the use of it for this evening from nine o'clock to eleven. It will be advisable to give your servant leave of absence for the evening, and perhaps you will be so kind as to leave the field open to the two adversaries. You will remember that when I visited your house on the night of the 22nd of June, I took excellent care of your property. I feel that I would do you an injustice if I should doubt, for one moment, your absolute discretion in this affair. Your devoted, Salvatore. I was amused at the facetious tone of his letter, and also at the whimsical nature of his request. There was a charming display of confidence and candour in his language, and nothing in the world could have induced me to deceive him or repay his confidence with ingratitude. I gave my servant a theatre ticket, and he left the house at eight o'clock. A few minutes later, Dasbury arrived. I showed him the letter. Well, said he. Well, I've left the garden gate unlocked, so anyone can enter. And you, are you going away? Not at all. I intend to stay right here. But he asks you to go. But I am not going. I will be discreet but I am resolved to see what takes place. Ma foy, exclaimed Dasbury, laughing. You are right, and I shall stay with you. I shouldn't like to miss it. We were interrupted by the sound of the doorbell. Here already, said Dasbury. Twenty minutes ahead of time. Incredible. I went to the door and ushered in the visitor. It was Madame Andermatt. She was faint and nervous, and in a stammering voice, she ejaculated, My husband is coming. He has an appointment. They intended to give him the letters. How do you know? I asked. By chance. A message came for my husband while we were at dinner. The servant gave it to me by mistake. My husband grabbed it quickly, but he was too late. I had read it. You read it? Yes. It was something like this. At nine o'clock this evening, be at Boulevard Malliot with the papers connected with the affair. In exchange, the letters. So, after dinner, I hastened here. Unknown to your husband? Yes. What do you think about it? asked Dasbury, turning to me. I think as you do, that Monsieur Andermatt is one of the invited guests. Yes, but for what purpose? 
This is what we are going to find out. I led them to a large room. The three of us could hide comfortably behind the velvet chimney mantle and observe all that should happen in the room. We seated ourselves there with Madame Andermatt in the centre. The clock struck nine. A few minutes later, the garden gate creaked open its hinges. I confess that I was greatly agitated. I was about to learn the key to the mystery. The startling events of the last few weeks were about to be explained, and, under my eyes, the last battle was going to be fought. Gaspary seized the hand of Madame Andermatt and said to her, Not a word, not a movement. Whatever you may see or hear, keep quiet. Someone entered. It was Alfred Varin. I recognized him at once, owing to the close resemblance he bore to his brother, Etienne. There was the same slouching gait, the same cadaverous face covered with a black beard. He entered with the nervous air of a man who is accustomed to fear in the presence of traps and ambushes, who scents and avoids them. He glanced about the room, and I had the impression that the chimney, masked with a velvet portiere, did not please him. He took three steps in our direction when something caused him to turn and walk towards the old mosaic king with the flowing beard and flamboyant sword, which he examined minutely, mounting on a chair and following his fingers the outline of the shoulders and head and feeling certain parts of the face. Suddenly, he leaped from the chair and walked away from it. He had heard the sound of an approaching footstep. Mon Andermatt appeared at the door. You, you, exclaimed the banker. Was it you who brought me here? I, by no means, protested Varin, in a rough, jerky voice that reminded me of his brother. On the contrary, it was your letter that brought me here. My letter? A letter signed by you, in which you offered. I never wrote to you, declared Monsieur Andermatt. You did not write to me. Instinctively, Varin was put on his guard, not against the banker, but against the unknown enemy who had drawn him into this trap. A second time, he looked in our direction, then walked towards the door. But Monsieur Andermatt barred his passage. Well, where are you going, Varin? There is something about this affair I don't like. I'm going home. Good evening. One moment. No need of that, Monsieur Andermatt. I have nothing to say to you but I have something to say to you, and this is a good time to say it. Let me pass. No, you will not pass. 
Varin recoiled before the resolute attitude of the banker as he muttered, Well then, be quick about it. One thing astonished me, and I have no doubt my two companions experienced a similar feeling. Why was Salvatore not there? Was he not a necessary party at this conference? Or was he satisfied to let these two adversaries fight it out between themselves? At all events, his absence was a great disappointment, although it did not distract from the dramatic strength of the situation. After a moment, Mon Andermatt approached Varin and, face to face, eye to eye, said, Now, after all these years, and when you have nothing more to fear, you can answer me candidly. What have you done with Louis Lacombe? What a question, as if I knew anything about him. You do know. You and your brother were his constant companions, almost lived with him in this very house. You knew all about his plans and his work, and the last night I ever saw Louis Lacombe, when I parted with him at my door, I saw two men slinking away in the shadows of a tree. That I am ready to swear. Well, what has that to do with me? The two men were you and your brother. Prove it. The best proof is that, two days later, you yourself showed me the papers and the plans that belonged to Lacombe and offered to sell them. How did these papers come into your possession? I have already told you, Monsieur Andermatt, that we found them on Louis Lacombe's table the morning after his disappearance. That is a lie. Prove it. Why did you not appeal to the law? Why? Ah, why? stammered the banker with a slight display of emotion. You know very well, Monsieur Andermatt, if you had the least certainty of our guilt, our little threat would not have stopped you. What threat? Those letters? Do you suppose I ever gave those letters a moment's thought? If you did not care for the letters, why did you offer me thousands of francs for their return? And why did you have my brother and me tracked like wild beasts? To recover the plans? Nonsense. You wanted the letters. You knew that as soon as you had the letters in your possession, you could denounce us. Oh no, I couldn't part with them. He laughed heartily, but stopped suddenly, and said, But, enough of this. We are merely going over old ground. We make no headway. We had better let things stand as they are. We will not let them stand as they are, said the banker. And since you have referred to the letters, let me tell you that you will not leave this house until you deliver upon those letters. I shall go when I please. You will not. Be careful, Monsieur Andermatt, 
I warn you. I say, you shall not go. We will see about that, cried Varin, in such a rage that Madame Andermatt could not suppress a cry of fear. Varin must have heard it, for he now tried to force his way out. Mon Andermatt pushed him back. Then I saw him put his hand into his coat pocket. For the last time, let me pass, he cried. The letters first. Varin drew a revolver and, pointing it at Mon Andermatt, said, Yes or no. The banker stooped quickly. There was the sound of a pistol shot. The weapon fell from Varin's hand. I was amazed. The shot was fired close to me. It was Dasbury who had fired at Varin, causing him to drop the revolver. In a moment, Dasbury was standing between the two men. Facing Varin, he said to him, with a sneer, You were lucky, my friend, very lucky. I fired at your hand and struck only the revolver. Both of them looked at him, surprised. Then he turned to the banker and said, I beg your pardon, monsieur, for meddling in your business, but really, you play a very poor game. Let me hold the cards. Turning again to Varin, Dasbury said, It's between us two, comrade, and play fair, if you please. Hearts are trumps, and I play the seven. Then Despre held up, before Varin's bewildered eyes, the little iron plate marked with the seven red spots. It was a terrible shock to Varin. With livid features, staring eyes, and an air of intense agony, the man seemed to be hypnotized at the sight of it. Who are you? he gasped. One who meddles in other people's business, down to the very bottom. What do you want? What you brought me here tonight? I brought nothing. Yes, you did, or you wouldn't have come. This morning, you received an invitation to come here at nine o'clock and bring with you all the papers held by you. You are here. Where are the papers? There was in Dasbury's voice and manner a tone of authority that I did not understand. His manner was usually quite mild and conciliatory. Absolutely conquered, Baron placed his hand on one of his pockets and said, The papers are here. All of them? Yes. All that you took from Louis Lacombe and afterwards sold to Major von Lieben. Yes. Are these the copies or the originals? I have the originals. How much do you want for them? One hundred thousand francs. You're crazy, said Dasbury. Why, the Major gave you only twenty thousand, 
and that was like money thrown into the sea, as the boat was a failure at the preliminary trials. They didn't understand the plans. The plans are not complete. Then, why do you ask me for them? Because I want them. I offer you five thousand francs, not a sou more. Ten thousand, not a sou less. Agreed, said Gaspry, who now turned to Monandamat and said, Monsieur will kindly sign a cheque for the amount. But I haven't got your chequebook. Here it is. Astounded, Monsieur Andermatt examined the chequebook that Gaspry handed to him. It is mine, he gasped. How does that happen? No idle words, Monsieur, if you please. You have merely to sign. The banker took out his fountain pen, filled out the cheque, and signed it. Varin held out his hand for it. Put down your hand, said Gaspry. There is something more. Then, to the banker, he said, You ask for some letters, did you not? Yes, a package of letters. Where are they, Varin? I haven't got them. Where are they, Varin? I don't know. My brother had charge of them. They are hidden in this room. In that case, you know where they are. How should I know? Was it not you who found the hiding place? You appear to be as well informed as Salvatore. The letters are not in the hiding place. They are. Open it. Varin looked at him defiantly. Were not Daspri and Salvatore the same person? Everything pointed to that conclusion. If so, Varin risked nothing in disclosing a hiding place already known. Open it, repeated Daspri. I have not got the Seven of Hearts. Yes, here it is, said Daspri. Handing him the iron plate, Farron recoiled in terror and cried, No, no, I will not. Never mind, replied Daspry, as he walked towards the bearded king, climbed on a chair and applied the seven of hearts to the lower part of the sword in such a manner that the edges of the iron plate coincided exactly with the two edges of the sword. Then, with the assistance of an oar which he had introduced alternately into each of the seven holes, he pressed upon seven of the little mosaic stones. As he pressed upon the seventh one, a clicking sound was heard, and the entire bust of the king turned upon a pivot, disclosing a large opening lined with steel. It was really a fireproof safe. You can see, Varin, the safe is empty. So I see. Then my brother has taken out the letters. Daspry stepped down from the chair, approached Varin, and said, Now, 
no more nonsense with me. There is another hiding place. Where is it? There is none. Is it money you want? How much? Ten thousand. Monsieur Andermatt, are those letters worth ten thousand francs to you? Yes, said the banker, firmly. Baron closed the safe, took the seven of hearts, and placed it again on the sword at the same spot. He thrust the oar into each of the seven holes. There was the same clicking sound, but this time, strange to relate, it was only a portion of the safe that revolved on the pivot, disclosing quite a small safe that was built within the door of the large one. The packet of letters was here, tied with a tape and sealed. Baron handed the packet to Dasbury. The latter turned to the banker and asked, Is the cheque ready, Monsieur Andermatt? Yes. And you have also the last document that you received from Louis Lacombe, the one that completes the plans of the submarine. Yes. The exchange was made. Dasbury pocketed the document and the cheques and offered the packet of letters to Monsieur Andermatt. This is what you wanted, Monsieur. The banker hesitated a moment, as if he were afraid to touch those cursed letters that he had sought so eagerly. Then, with a nervous movement, he took them. Close to me, I heard a moan. I grasped Madame Andermatt's hand. It was cold. I believe, Monsieur, said Dasbury to the banker, that our business is ended. Oh, no thanks. It was only by a mere chance that I have been able to do you a good turn. Good night. Monsieur Andermatt retired. He carried with him the letters written by his wife to Louis Lacombe. Marvellous, exclaimed Dasbury, delighted. Everything is coming our way. Now, we have only to close our little affair, comrade. You have the papers. Here they are, all of them. Dasbury examined them carefully and then placed them in his pocket. Quite right, you have kept your word, he said. But, but what? The two cheques, the money, said Varin eagerly. Well, you have a great deal of assurance, my man. How dare you ask such a thing? I ask only what is due to me. Can you ask pay for returning papers that you stole? Well, I think not. Varin was beside himself. He trembled with rage. His eyes were bloodshot. The money, the twenty thousand, he stammered. Impossible. I need it myself. The money. Come, be reasonable, and don't get excited. It won't do you any good. Dasbury seized his arm so forcibly 
that Varin uttered a cry of pain. Dasbury continued. Now, you can go. The air will do you good. Perhaps you want me to show you the way. Ah, yes, we will go together to the vacant lot near here, and I will show you a little mound of earth and stones, and under it. That is false. That is false. Oh, no, it is true. That little iron plate with the seven spots on it came from there. Louis Lacombe always carried it, and you buried it with the body, and with some other things that will prove very interesting to a judge and jury. Varin covered his face with his hands and muttered, All right, I am beaten. Say no more. But I want to ask you one question. I should like to know. What is it? Was there a little casket in the large safe? Yes. Was it there on the night of the 22nd of June? Yes. What did it contain? Everything that the Varin brothers had put in it. A very pretty collection of diamonds and pearls picked up here and there by the said brothers. And did you take it? Of course I did. Do you blame me? I understand. It was the disappearance of that casket that caused my brother to kill himself. Probably. The disappearance of your correspondence was not a sufficient motive. But the disappearance of the casket, is that all you wish to ask me? One thing more. Your name. You ask that with an idea of seeking revenge. Parbleu, the table may be turned. Today, you are on top. Tomorrow, it will be you. I hope so. Your name? Arsène Lupin. Arsène Lupin. The man staggered, as though stunned by a heavy blow. Those two words had deprived him of all hope. Dasbury laughed and said, Ah, did you imagine that a Monsieur Durand and Dupont would manage an affair like this? No, it required the skill and cunning of Arsène Lupin. And now that you have my name, go and prepare your revenge. Arsène Lupin will be waiting for you. Then he pushed the bewildered Varin through the door. Dasbury, Dasbury, I cried, pushing aside the curtain. He ran to me. What? What's the matter? Madame Andermatt is ill. He hastened to her, caused her to inhale some salts, and, while caring for her, questioned me. Well, what did it? The letters of Louis Lacombe that you gave to her husband. He struck his forehead and said, Did she think that I could do such a thing? 
but of course she would, imbecile that I am. Madame Andermatt was now revived. Dasprey took from his pocket a small package, exactly similar to the one that Monsieur Andermatt had carried away. Here are your letters, madame. These are the genuine letters. But the others, the others are the same, rewritten by me and carefully worded. Your husband will not find anything objectionable in them and will never suspect the substitution since they were taken from the safe in his presence. But the handwriting... There is no handwriting that cannot be imitated. She thanked him in the same words she might have used to a man in her own social circle, so I concluded that she had not witnessed the final scene between Varin and Arsène Lupin. But the surprising revelation caused me considerable embarrassment. Lupin, my club companion, was none other than Arsène Lupin. I could not realise it, but he said, quite at his ease, You can say farewell to Jean d'Asprey. Ah, yes, Jean d'Asprey is going on a long journey. I shall send him to Morocco. There, he may find a death worthy of him. I may say that that is his expectation. But Arsène Lupin will remain. Oh, decidedly. Arsène Lupin is simply at the threshold of his career, and he expects. I was impelled by curiosity to interrupt him, and, leading him away from the hearing of Madame Andermatt, I asked, Did you discover the small safe yourself, the one that held the letters? Yes, after a great deal of trouble. I found it yesterday afternoon while you were asleep, and yet, God knows it was simple enough, but the simplest things are the ones that usually escape our notice. Then, showing me the seven of hearts, he added, Of course, I had guessed that in order to open the larger safe, this card must be placed on the sword of the Mosaic King. How did you guess that? Quite easily. Through private information, I knew that fact when I came here on the evening of the 22nd of June. After you left me. Yes, after turning the subject of our conversation to the stories of crime and robbery, which were sure to reduce you to such a nervous condition that you would not leave your bed, but would allow me to complete my search uninterrupted. The scheme worked perfectly. Well, I knew when I came here that there was a casket concealed in a safe with a secret lock and that the Seven of Hearts was the key to that lock. I had merely to place the card upon the spot that was obviously intended for it. An hour's examination showed me where the spot was. One hour. Observe the fellow in mosaic. 
the old emperor. That old emperor is an exact representation of the king of hearts on all playing cards. That's right. But how does the seven of hearts open the larger safe at one time and the smaller safe at another time? And why did you open only the larger safe in the first instance? I mean, on the night of the 22nd of June. Why? Because I always placed the seven of hearts in the same way. I never changed the position. But yesterday, I observed that by reversing the card, by turning it upside down, the arrangement of the seven spots on the mosaic was changed. Parbleu. Of course, Parbleu. But a person has to think of those things. There is something else. You did not know the history of those letters until Madame Andermatt spoke of them before me. No, because I found in the safe, besides the casket, nothing but the correspondence of the two brothers which disclosed their treachery in regards to the plans. Then it was by chance that you were led, first, to investigate the history of the two brothers, and then to search for the plans and documents relating to the submarine. Simply by chance. For what purpose did you make the search? Mon Dieu, exclaimed Dasprey, laughing. How deeply interested you are. The subject fascinates me. Very well. Presently, after I have escorted Madame Andermatt to a carriage and dispatched a short story to the Echo de France, I will return and tell you all about it. He sat down and wrote one of those short, clear-cut articles which served to amuse and mystify the public. Who does not recall the sensation that followed that article, produced throughout the entire world? Arsène Lupin has solved the problem recently submitted by Salvatore. Having acquired possession of all the documents and original plans of the engineer Louis Lacombe, he has placed them in the hands of the Minister of Marine and has headed a subscription list for the purpose of presenting to the nation the first submarine construction from those plans. His subscription is 20,000 francs. 20,000 francs, the checks of Monsieur Andermatt, I exclaimed when he had given me the papers to read. Exactly. It was quite right that Varin should redeem his treachery. And that is how I made the acquaintance of Arsène Lupin. That is how I learned that Jean Dasprey, a member of my club, was none other than Arsène Lupin, gentleman thief. That is how I formed very agreeable ties of friendship with the famous man, and, thanks to the confidence with which he honoured me, how I became his very humble and faithful historiographer. <laughs>